Hi, this is Chris Castle, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast with Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchert. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Billboard, weekly U.S. vinyl album sales break modern era record fueled by holiday shopping. From the New Yorker, genre is disappearing. What comes next? From Variety, why 2021 was the year of the drummer. And from MIT, four strategies for digital growth from Spotify's CFO. Yeah, we're talking about a lot of stuff here. And believe it or not, it's 2022. Wow, that was fast. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's episode 73. That was fast. It's the Your Morning Coffee podcast. Stand by for transmission. This is London Coffee. Wake up! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Well, Jay, what is going on, brother? Feliz Año Nuevo. Good to see you, man. Good to see you. Do a little bilingual, uh, you know, yeah. thing for you. Yeah. It's uh, it's weird. It's 2022. I just, I'm stunned. You know, they say, obviously, the older you get, time flies faster. And I am certainly getting older. And yes. uh, it was explained to me that the reason time feels so much faster when you get older is because it becomes a smaller and smaller percentage of your lifetime, which makes, makes total sense. sense. So when you're five years old and another year goes by, that's 20% of your life. When you're my age or your age, <laughs> which we will not divulge those ages. Late 30s, early 40s. That's right, okay. late 30s. In my mind, I'm certainly late 30s. Uh, yeah, it becomes a smaller and smaller percentage. So for you and me, it's a just a blip. And yeah. Uh, yeah. here we are, and ready to rock for 2022. Yeah, I'm optimistic. We've had a couple of really difficult, challenging years, um, and I'm really optimistic about uh, 2022. Um, I've been reading a lot of uh, predictions. I've been posting a lot of those in your morning coffee, and I'm really excited for the future of the uh, new music business. Yeah, I am too. Um and, you know, I was actually had breakfast with a friend uh, yesterday morning who was in town near me here. And we were talking about, you know, just as we, you and I talk about, you know, it's the, the money. It's like, it's, it seems so sudden, although I'm sure it was kind of leading up to that. But suddenly uh, people have recognized the value of music in a way they haven't for a long time. And, you know, even when, you know, you and I both worked for Universal and for Warners, and we both worked for those companies when they were uh, associated with large studios. And the music divisions in those studios were always kind of stepchildren, you know, but the money flowed. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the record business was very profitable for Warner Brothers Records, for MCA Records, but certainly for Warner Brothers back in the day. Especially in those CD CD era. Yeah. Uh, But even then... License to print money. But it wasn't wasn't like uh, the financial industries really necessarily... I mean, they, they knew if they looked, but it wasn't kind of on their radar like it is now. And so yeah. that's that's a remarkable Well, now it's a change. little bit predictable, right? I mean, Absolutely. now there's a little bit of uh, uh, stability to it that was never really there. 
And I had the pleasure of working for Fox Home Entertainment for a couple of years. I remember that. My entire career was music, except for those two years. I worked, uh, you know, film, uh, DVD, you know, that sort of thing. And what you realize really quickly is uh, there's so much more revenue, or at least there was back then, Mm -hmm. in a film. I I got to work uh, Avatar. Oh, right. Gosh, I remember when it crossed like a billion dollars. And our budgets for, you know... uh, online marketing and digital assets and all of that was in comparison to the music side, it was astronomical. It was like Ford and Coca-Cola money and not, you know, cause you know, we like to joke around that the music business, you know, throws around uh, money like manhole covers. Right. (laughs) And that, you know, if you've got a budget for uh, a release, I mean, even some of the top releases, you'd be surprised at, how little those budgets are because the revenue, you know, it has to be commensurate mm-hmm. with, uh, with that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's, it's, it is fascinating. By the way, the guy that I get to talk to, well, gosh, every week now is none other than Jay Gilbert. He is the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter, weekly music news for the new music business, and a former executive, as he just mentioned, with Universal Music, Sony Music, and the Warner Music Groups, and a stint in the movie business at Fox Home Entertainment. <laughs> well played, sir. And uh, this guy across from me, one of my favorite people on the planet, is Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, capital EMI. And Universal Music. Yeah, and I think that there's going to be a book coming out on SST Records, my first oh, really? gig in the record business. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I don't know oh, anything I about bet. it. Yeah, so it'll be, and they're still around, strangely enough. And Jay, we should also talk about our sponsors, because man, again, Let's as we it. hit 2022, boy, we are so appreciative of the folks that help us bring the podcast to you all, yeah. including TiVo Music Metadata, dedicated to bringing order to the chaos of digital music. TiVo Music Metadata offers obsessively deduplicated artist, album, and song IDs, expert-written editorial content and ratings, verified images, weighted deep descriptors, similar artists, band members, and influences, authoritative credits, personalization discovery and search APIs purpose-built solutions for classical music and a global connected car platform linking broadcast radio with streaming jump over to TiVo.com music to find out about all the groovy stuff that TiVo yeah. Music Metadata does Yes, sir. Your Morning Coffee podcast is also brought to you by our good friends at Banzoogle. Banzoogle is built by musicians for musicians. It's an all-in-one platform, makes it super easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website, everything's built right in. Hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, very important, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com, try it for free for 30 days. Just use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, Morning Coffee, and that'll get you 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. And we are also sponsored by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. Edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Owen Davis, HypeBot, and sister, music, sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Yeah, speaking of Bands in Town, over 65 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. The number one artist services platform connecting over 550,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Yes, indeed. So thanks to TiVo Music, Metadata, Bandzoogle, Bands in Town, HypeBot. Boy, we certainly appreciate it. They are great folks, and we recognize uh, our blessings to have them help us with the podcast. So yeah, indeed. Yeah, Yeah, we have great sponsors. We do. And as we jump into 2022, Jay, there is no shock that we are going to start with an article from Billboard. Weekly U.S. vinyl album sales break modern era record fueled by holiday shopping. Yeah. The fun just keeps on happening in vinyl. Yeah. 
the numbers just keep uh, growing. Yeah, this piece was written by Keith Caulfield. Thank you, Keith. Great piece here. And it just uh, puts an exclamation point on some of the discussions we've had about uh, vinyl. And even with the problems that vinyl has had, you know, with the supply chain and with you know, all the variants that we've been talking about, weekly U.S. vinyl sales hit a modern era record. Uh, 2.11 million vinyl albums were sold in the week ending December 23rd, according to MRC Data. That's the artist formerly known as SoundScan. It's the single largest sales week for vinyl albums since MRC Data began tracking music sales back in uh, 1991. It's the first time that weekly vinyl sales have exceeded 2 million in the MRC Data era. The previous single uh, week high since 1991 uh, came a year ago when 1.84 million vinyl LPs were sold in the week ending December 24th. It's crazy, you know? I mean, I, I was thinking when I read the article, too, I'm like, okay, what was going on in 1991 vinyl-wise? And my, my recollection was it was really winding down then. Um, it would be interesting to see what kind of a, what a number would have been like in the late 80s, like maybe, say, 87, when yeah. CDs were out, but it was still a vinyl world. And, of course, um, we didn't have SoundScan. And we didn't have SoundScan. MRC, right? Yeah, so it's, exactly. it's tough. But I was working at Tower Records when the CD was launched. Yeah. And, and I remember how at first it was one small rack of CDs, and they were very expensive. Yes. And uh, I remember buying the Beatles' Abbey Road, a Japanese import of it, which was quickly recalled. Uh, <laughs> I <laughs> right remember that. that, too. Yes. And, uh, and then watching as... Back then, cassettes were still huge. Yes, um, absolutely. Watching, you know, vinyl. Vinyl was still a big deal, and then slowly over time, those racks kind of switched from CD. Yeah. I'm sorry, from vinyl to uh, CD. Yeah, and I remember I was actually working at SST, the punk rock label, and um, we were making the transition. Uh, you know, it was still a vinyl world. We didn't do m much in cassettes, but um, but CDs were picking up, and and I remember yeah. at the time. Uh, there were two, you know, of course, SST was an independent label and we, and that was one of my, that was my gig as I worked with all the independent distributors in the U S and, and actually around the world for them. And, um, there was a, there was a big, uh, independent distributor on the East coast and the West coast called important and mm -hmm. important, uh, went out of business and they owed SST $400,000, which was a ton of money in those days or something wow. like that. Still and is. we, but we weren't able to get our CDs. So there, there we were, CDs were just happening. They were just, everybody wanted CDs and their CDs, our CDs were sitting, uh, on the floor of the manufacturing facility. Cause, cause we'd been stiffed by a, oh. a distributor that went out of business, but you know, that, that, so that's, that, that's, we're talking now 1988, I think. And so I, I'm trying to remember when, when did they hit really in stores? Was it 86? It was, yeah, it was earlier. Actually, I'm thinking 83. Uh, oh, they started okay. to trickle in, um, in, I started with universal, I believe in 88, um, and you know, we had multiple configurations there and CDs were, uh, you know, full blown by then, but I just remember them starting to trickle in, in like, I think 83 ish around that, by the way, when you were mentioning SST, I couldn't help but think that scenario you just described will probably be a chapter in that book. I would imagine so. I uh, absolutely. Yeah. Cause that's, you know, that's, that's the peril of being in, in, with independent distributors, you know, it, it, it's kind of a, at the day, at least it was kind of a volatile world. Um, yeah. But, you know, but, and, and then and, get, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to interrupt uh, rudely that um, <laughs> when you're an indie, those kinds of things can put you out of business. I remember Verez yes. Saraband. Do you remember that label? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, they made their name really on uh, soundtracks, mostly. Yeah. Um, and they got the soundtrack to this little film called Ghost. And it blew up, and the album became a platinum album, that soundtrack, and it almost put them out of business. Because what people don't realize, when you're an indie and you need CDs made, you have to pay for that. You have to yes. pay up front for that. And when you're a small little company with tons of demand like that, you have to be very careful that you don't get excess obsolescent inventory. That's so, right. My, That's right. My, I no, absolutely. So. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, getting back to the vinyl thing, so fast forward to about 1990, well, let me see, I was at Giant Records in 92. 
two, I think. And uh, and I remember we wanted I wanted to get some uh, at that time. So by that time, there was no vinyl. I remember I had to pull some vinyl. Uh, for an album I was working out of the UK because they still had because I because at that time even college radio still kind of liked having vinyl and so this was kind of a college radio project I was working on and and I had to get it out of the UK because there was no US manufacturer by then of most albums some hmm. had vinyl but but not a ton yeah so but when we talk about vinyl now it is stunning uh yeah. this by the way the sixth week in a row of million plus vinyl sales uh so you're talking you know i mean i don't know what's the total number on here um a lot of vinyl bottom line yeah. is that <laughs> as we wind that wind it yeah. down people are basically again as we've talked about you know a, a fair amount of these vinyl sales never get cracked open and put on the turntable they're yeah. collector's items, and it's, you know, I, again, I yeah. never would have predicted this sort of resurgence. Yeah, and it's it's half of, or actually more than half of all album uh, sales. That's right. Um, they say in this piece, you know, weekly vinyl LP sales, you know, outpaced CD sales. We've known that for a while. We've been talking about that. Um, but for the 23rd week in 2021, Weekly vinyl LP sales exceeded CD album sales. So it was 2.11 million vinyl albums uh, versus 1.58 million CDs. Since 1991, though, uh, vinyl LPs have outsold CDs in just 28 weeks, five weeks in 2020 and 23 weeks so far in 2021, because um, there was still one more week left in the year uh, when this thing, uh, when this article was uh, published. And the top-selling vinyl album uh, in the week ending December 23rd, no surprise, was Adele's 30. 59,000 copies sold, uh, which is a stunning number for a week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's, it's up almost at 300,000 copies on vinyl in That's the That's crazy. I know. Unbelievable. 300,000 copies of vinyl. In the year 2021. Um, most people, yeah, most people would be thrilled to have 300,000, you know, equivalents or, you know, download oh, yeah. albums. That's... That's absolutely insane. Anyway, a nice little snapshot there from Keith uh, Caulfield on uh, the uh, the vinyl uh, sales and how they're they're continuing to grow and set records. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the next article we're going to talk about is from the New Yorker, and this was a really interting article, very mm -hmm. dense and deep. Uh, yeah. Genre is disappearing. What comes next? And it, I don't recall seeing a ton of. Uh, of music articles in the New Yorker. <laughs> maybe maybe no, there are. You know, from time to time, I've run a couple of them, but yeah. certainly not not a lot. This was written by Amanda uh, Petru Petrusic. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. probably right. Petrusic, All right, well, that probably sounds sorry, right. Amanda. You know, I'm, I didn't mean to butcher your name, but kind of the uh, sub-headline here is, says, as record stores uh, close and streaming algorithms dominate, uh, the identities that music fandom supplies are in flux. And I think that's really important. Uh, and we'll, we'll go into this piece because it covers so many different things. But, you know, it, it used to be all about genre because you had to, you know, we were talking about record stores, right? Mm -hmm. um, you had to organize those albums. You know, there was a vocal section, there was a jazz section, there was yeah. a rock section. So it was a way to kind of show people, oh, that's over in the classical section. And same with radio. Um, you could kind of classify these things under genre. But now that everything's kind of available, you know, at your fingertips, plus there's a lot of things, uh, you know, like Kendrick Lamar. There, there's so many different artists who are blending uh, genres and I think the best way to describe it is really more, and they go into it in this piece too, is about, it's almost about the mood, you know, and putting yeah. together songs in a certain playlist um, that are of a certain tempo or of a certain move, I, mood. I like these um, kind of workout playlists, but I also mm -hmm. like these coffee house uh, playlists. I listen to yeah. a lot of those um, when I'm working because they don't distract me. Um, yeah. It's just really nice uh, music to kind of listen to when you're doing work. Um, and But, you know, if I'm working out, I like something a little bit more, you know, heavy, like more rock, right. more, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, they talk about, and we've talked about, um, playlists like Pollen on Spotify. 
that's not really a genre or a mood. It's really, they're looking at what kind of people would like this kind of music. So it's targeted more at a demographic, you know, than it is a mood or a genre. Yeah. And it's, you know, well, and and this article goes back to the beginning of recorded music and does some really deep dives on, you know, kind of, uh, well, some, some, pretty racist things back actually yeah. going, going back in the beginning but you know i think it's it's you know and, and as the article points out you know one of the things that you know back in the day when we were doing marketing music and marketing artists is you you know you want to start with a uh, you kind of start small with with some sort of a group of, of early adopters and genre was kind of an easy easy system i suppose with which yeah. to kind of start start the ball rolling and right. but as you said when and we we've talked about a lot about this you know back in the day when big champagne came out and there's suddenly all of this data about what you know people what they're listening to and we learned you know then which we even knew before that stuff existed was that yeah people's genre tastes are very fluid and and you'd be surprised that somebody who likes Metallica also likes Waylon Jennings or you know or or somebody likes Metallica also likes I don't know, know anybody who listens to just one genre of music you know maybe if you get to folks who are really into classical maybe a little bit in jazz but in general um, you know, most, most of my friends, and I'll use that as my focus group, you know, if you look through their music collection, uh, it's, it's across the board. It's got a little bit of, of everything. It might lean towards a certain genre a little bit, but I'll bet you if I looked at your music collection, uh, it would be very eclectic. It would have things across the board from all different genres and moods. Yeah, absolutely. And and this article kind of starts out about sort of the contortions that the the Grammys are are having to kind of deal with because so that's oh, yeah. really how it starts and it mentions that and I, I I this is the first time I've I've heard about this. Maybe you knew about this. But it says in late November Justin Bieber expects expressed displeasure yeah. with the way his music had been identified by the Recording Academy. His fifth studio album, Changes, was up for Best Pop Vocal Album, which of course is a major category. He said, I'm very meticulous and intentional about my music, which he wrote on Instagram. With that being said, I set out to make an R&B album. Changes was and is an R&B album. It is not being acknowledged as an R&B album, which is very strange to me. So that's kind of why, at least the article starts out, is, you know, how do you, for these awards and things like that, you know, it is, it's, it's, you know, and but then again, I, and I would who listen decides? to who decides, yeah, right? who decides? Should it be the label right. decides because they put it in the metadata when they deliver uh, the music to the DSPs, for example. That genre is a field that they need to fill out when you put something in the submission tool for Spotify. You you tell them a genre, but in that submission tool, you do so much more. You talk about subgenres, you talk about mm-hmm. instruments used and um, you know the overall kind of sound of the music. But a lot of the stuff that you're referring to is that nomination committee, you know, at the Recording Academy, and it's been under a little bit of fire over the last couple of years um, because they've been making that determination and it's all kind of a confidential uh, process. You know, whether an album belongs in one category or another, like rock or alternative, folk or Americana, that's really debated uh, often hotly, you know, by that nomination committee. So maybe there needs to be a little bit more transparency there or um, the artist and label should be able to designate um, what that genre uh, is. But I can see how people might want to game the system. You know, maybe put something as a genre that has less competition uh, in order to... But then again, maybe you do that case by case. I don't know. It's really, it's really, really complicated because it, you know, last year it was Tyler, the creator, you know, he won for best uh, rap album and he said, and I quote, I'm very grateful uh, for what uh, I made and could just be acknowledged in a world like this. But also it sucks that whenever we, and I mean, guys that look like me do anything that's genre bending, they always put it in rap or urban. I don't like that word urban. To me, it's just a politically correct way of saying the N-word. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you know? no. 100% right. 
Absolutely. And, you know, and, and that is one of the tragic things, I think, when, you know, and, and still, you know, it's even within the, the, um, the hallowed halls of major labels, there's still a lot of um, uh, kind of um, these walls inside the building of who works on what kind of music. And, uh, you know, this, this thing about urban music in quotation marks, damn straight, yeah. you know, it's yeah. like, what's the difference between any, the way music is done, the way it's marketed, the way it's promoted, you know, it's, and yet at, uh, and I remember this at, at, and well, it, well, in fact, at Warner Brothers, it's just called the black music department. Yeah. I mean, and you can make the case that it's all black music. <laughs> if you're playing the blues scale, <laughs> that's yeah, right. it's all yeah. black music. So I always remember even then thinking like, wow, that's kind of weird. You know, why are you going to segregate it like that? But segregation is exactly what it is. And yeah, perfect word to, de- to describe it. Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, I grew up listening to, you know, uh, Earth, Wind & Fire and Hall & Oates. And to me, they were the same genre. It wasn't based on the color of their skin. Right. Right. It was just very soulful uh, music. And maybe I'm wrong, but that's just kind of my, my uh, you know, thoughts uh, coming out of that was they sounded good uh, together. But, you know, they talk about in this article, you know, maybe it should just be best music. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't want anybody left behind when there's these uh, smaller genres you know, um, one of my clients uh, last year won a Grammy for a Best Regional Roots album. And if it was just, if they were lumped in with Tyler, Tyler the Creator or, you know, uh, Billie Eilish, yeah, they're, they're not going to get, you know, any kind of attention. So I do think that there needs to be these separate groups, but it's got to be maybe uh, broader than just genre um, and mood and you know, I'm sure some smart people can figure out a way to do that where it's, you know, it's a little bit more fair. Yeah, there's a great line here that Amanda put. Uh, it, 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 it kind of sums up, well, it, it's very clever. She says, I graduated from high school at the end of the 1990s, and I've often wondered whether I was part of the final cohort to think of unwavering genre fealty as an expression of integrity. You picked a style and vigorously defended its superiority. As a teenager, Mm -hmm. I lived in near constant fear of being called a poser, an incoherent tenderfoot (laughs) who simply drifted toward whatever was popular. Now the idea of identity as a fixed and narrow concept and of taste as inherently cloistered feels bizarre, punitive, and regressive. Taste is still a way of broadcasting a social identity and indulging in a kind of instinctive tribalism, but the boundaries are no longer quite so circumscribed. Yeah. That is some highfalutin words there, Jay Gilbert. It is. It's very eloquent <laughs> it's, and hilarious. And, yes, because... But she's right. Absolutely yes. right. You know, she talks about scrolling, you know, Nirvana on the sides of her chucks, you know, with a black Sharpie. But... She she makes some really valid points. In 1980, you know, Debbie Harry uh, from Blondie, she rapped, you know, on some mm-hmm. verses of Rapture, right? That was that disco-influenced, you know, pop hit. In, in 1984, the Beastie Boys illegally used an ACDC sample and, and bragged about it, right? Two years later, the rap group Run DMC, you know, of course, they did the collaboration with Aerosmith and Walk This Way, you know, which became the first rap song ever to chart on the Billboard Top 10. The song's opening guitar rift, you know, had been super popular with hip-hop DJs in New York for years. Uh, Grandmaster Flash had used it as early as 1978. But most listeners, uh, the partnership was startling. Um, And and I I remember these things, but they didn't strike me as being, like when I heard Debbie Harry rapping, rap wasn't a big thing back Mm -mm. then. It was still, you know, very nascent. Um, but, you know, um, there, there were, who was it? It was Jeff uh, Edgers uh, who wrote that book, Walk This Way, Run DMC, Aerosmith, and the song that changed American music forever. That's Jeff Edgers. He said that uh, Walk This Way broke down musical genres uh, so they didn't really exist. And in 1991, Perry Farrell, you know, of Jane's Addiction, launched Lollapalooza. And I had forgotten about this. You know, I knew that that was, you know, one of the first kind of multi-act summer tours. But the lineup 
um, it wasn't really a particular genre. You know, the, the first lineup had Rollins Band, Susie and the Banshees, Living Color, Butthole Surfers, Ice-T, mm-hmm. Body Count, you know, bands that didn't necessarily share a musical thread. But, you know, the, the festival was branded as, quote-unquote, alternative. But its theme, and this is what I thought was really interesting, was inclusivity. That's yeah. very cool. No, absolutely. And in fact, and I was working at Warner's when that first... Uh, first Lollapalooza happened and I remember going down and seeing it and looking at all those different bands and it was and they didn't mention Nine Inch Nails was also on that on that bill oh that's uh, right and and Pearl Jam and um and one of these days I'll tell you a funny story because I just started at Giant and, and I went I went with Irving Azoff in his car to the first Lollapalooza and he at the time that was at Irvine Meadows Amphitheater which he was a part owner in let me tell you when you go to a concert with the guy who owns the venue there's no going back. There's no yeah. going back. Yeah, but it was such a great uh, and interesting show, and uh, and you know, and and like you said, he he was looking for diversity and inclusivity, and you know, yes, whoever liked Rollins' band probably liked Body Count and probably liked Living Color and the Butthole Surfers and Jane's yeah. Addiction. So again, it's more about that demographic or target audience and less about genre and moods, right? Because mm-hmm. um, it really struck me, she talks about Lil Nas X, you know, and Old Town Road. Yeah. You know, and that certainly blurred genre lines. You know, it's it was based on an instrumental track, I didn't know this, that, that features a sample of 34 Ghosts 4, um, uh, a loping Which, song by the industrial band Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. It contains some rapping, some singing, and, you know, the horses, boots, wranglers, you know, all of that stuff. And Lil Nas X, who of course is black, often wore chaps, fringe, and a sizable Stetson hat. Uh, the track gained um, popularity first on TikTok and then on the Billboard Country Chart, but here's where it got interesting. It debuted at number 19 on the Billboard Country Chart before Billboard removed it, claiming it had miscategorized it. Billboard later explained that it determined genre by, quote, looking at an artist's chart history, listening to the song, looking at the streaming services, and examining how and where the label is promoting and marketing the song, mm-hmm. end quote. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's well, it's, listen, it's, you know, kind of Billboard and the Grammys are kind of at a, you know, yeah, you're, you're in a bit of a trick box because, um, you know, you for the presentation of the show and kind of their existence, the Grammy kind of, you know, you can't just say, okay, what's the best song of night of 2021 or who's the best producer? I mean, I guess you can, but you're, you're not going to, you know, the, having multiple genres and things like that gives you the presentation, gives you the show. So yeah, it gives everybody a, a shot. Yeah. And so, yeah, making that transition, but, but, you know, like, Everything is a mix is a is a is a kind of a um, a mis a mix up of all kinds yeah. of different genres, and yeah. that's that's the beauty of music, right? Is 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 you're you're combining yeah. lots of elements to make your thing. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I just think, and maybe I'm in the minority. I just think that the artist should should choose what the genre is because they wrote it, uh, maybe, um, but they're certainly uh, performing it. Um, the CEO and co-chairman of Warner uh, Records is uh, Aaron Bashuk, and uh, Aaron said that um, genre is still critical to determining how an artist will be presented to the public by a major label. We're always asking ourselves, who is the audience for this music? Um, what fans will be the first early adopters? What is the early entry point? And you know, those questions dictate radio, press, marketing strategies. And I think that's that's key here is so maybe the genre should be something that's um, really crafted uh, that message by the artist and the label and not necessarily the recording academy unless somebody's trying to game the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <sighs> this, this article conjures up just so many different things to think about. Um, yeah. You know, they mentioned, they, they've got a comment in here by uh, uh, Nabil, I guess that's how you pronounce his name, Nabil Ayers. Yeah, who's I've, the met, U- I've met Nabil. Um, yeah. he, he used to run a record store in uh, Seattle. Oh, really? Um, um, it's, it's fallen out of my head right now, so I'm sure I'll, I'll get mail, but uh, it was years ago. Super cool guy. Um, but, but, yeah, but you know, he's now the general manager for AD. 
Yeah, the U.S. General Manager. So 4AD, if you don't know 4AD, uh, they are a great label. And much like my my former or my first job in the business at SST, 4AD, like SST, there were people that were fans of the label. And they would just buy anything that came out on that label. And so he mentioned, he said, 4AD has always been defined more by its psychology than by its sound, though fans of the label often conflate the two. We put out music by drastically different artists and always have, he said. But even before I was at the label, people loved to talk about the old days of 4AD when it had such recognizable, such a recognizable aesthetic. And I'm always like... But Pixies and Cocteau Twins sound nothing alike. 4AD does have to think about genre when the label is asked to provide metadata for a new release. It's pretty archaic, he said, of the process. Is it electronic? Is it rock? Is it alternative? You have to choose one of those big buckets to put things in, and we've talked about that as well. But we didn't. We don't think about it as much beyond the, that tick of a box. He doesn't see genre as, as relevant to the way younger listeners experience music. I don't think they actively don't think about it, he said. I think they actually don't think about it, he added. It's so easy to find anything you want without having to label it. Yeah. So, you know... This goes right back to what we were saying, that it's really more about targeting an audience and mm -hmm. less about... You know the label. By the way, Nabil ran um, Sonic Boom Records. Oh, you know, I remember that. In yes. Seattle. Yeah. Yes, I never went there, but I remember seeing the name on a list of you know independent. Super cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Store, yeah. Too cool. Well, it's you know, in 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 many ways, labels like 4AD and SST were kind of the um, uh, almost kind of the playlists of of what we have now, which is you know yeah. they, these you know people that ran those labels liked what they liked. And the people recognize that they liked a lot of the same things that the, the people that are running the labels and signing the artists like. And so you had these identities of a handful of labels. It was hard to, you couldn't really do that. Um, but 4AD and SST and a few others really had that. They had fans of the label that would yeah. just buy anything, you know. And that and is so rare, you know. Mm -hmm. um, when, you're, when you're a fan of music and you can't wait for sub pop, you know, beggars. Right. Sub pop is definitely another one. Absolutely. You know, to put something out because you know it's going to be good, even though it's not uh, going to be exactly similar. Like Nabil points out here, you know, Spotify operates from a little bit different model. You know, they they're starting to sort more by vibe or mood. You know, an, an idea that, you know, it, I think it's more important than genre. Spotify playlists are determined in one of three ways: personalized playlists. You know, that's the one that get recommended to you by the, uh, you know, by the service. Um, some people call them algorithmically uh, created, but really they're personalized playlists and they're very good at doing that. You know, so those are compiled by an algorithm that uses a listener's kind of previous activity or the activity of others um, who have exhibited similar habits. Listener playlists are compiled by, compiled by individuals, you know, that's like a user curated playlist that like we will make, you know, that want to broadcast their taste. The third one, editorial playlists are curated uh, by Spotify or Spotify's uh, system. Um, it could be employees. It could be, you know, a little bit of both. Um, some prominent editorial playlists like Rap Caviar have a genre uh, attached to them. But, you know, many more are fundamentally experimental Right. Uh, songs to sing to the in, in the car or mood booster. And they rely, you know, on listener response, you know, judging by their success. It doesn't seem that difficult to figure out how a song will make a person feel, you know, and they, they talk a little bit about, you know, some of these playlists like Pollen, you know, that mm -hmm. we've mentioned before. That's really, again, like what you just described. It's really more about hitting someone. Uh, that they know would dig the music without it being cons consistent in its genre. Yeah, it, it's um, uh, <laughs> well, you got to read the article because there's so much going oh on God. in this article. Yeah. It's it's yeah. really well done, and uh, it'll just bring out so many interesting points that. Um, you know, and again, it's about the evolution of the business, so to speak, is how we're kind of, we are just moving away from these fixed kind of uh, things. And, and, but also equally more important is, is the, the consumers of music are yeah. less and less focused on genres and, and, and playlists are a big reason for that because it, yeah, it, I wanted it, to it ask shows you about exactly your, what's, yeah, I wanted to ask you about your radio uh, growing up. My my experience in radio when I was younger, 
was, I think it started off with probably KJR in Seattle, and they would play things that weren't the same genre. They would play, you know, Poco and Pure Prairie League alongside of, you know, Earth, Wind and Fire and or Wild Cherry. And we, it just sounded like good music. And I think it's yeah. cyclical and it's coming around. When when you were growing up, what, what radio station did you listen to? Yeah, well, it depends what, what age I was, you know, and I got into music pretty young. But yeah. I think, you know, for us at the age we're at, we were pretty lucky to have grown up uh, and been around AM radio in the early 1970s. Because at that time, AM radio changed. You know, it was, it was called Top 40 Radio then. It was on AM stations, or, or yeah, AM and, and early FM. But, um, uh, you know, it was it was really diverse. And, and that was that was the era that you and I grew up in. And so, like you, you were saying, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't know that there was okay, that Al Green was black music and that Led Zeppelin was white music stealing from black music or or what you know I, I i didn't know or didn't care you know i just yeah. knew i liked the songs and so i think when you at that time uh we kind of grew up in an era when when it just was less stratified if it made it to top 40 it's because it had done well at other formats yeah. that which which, yeah. which kind of stayed that way for a long time yeah. that that sort of system um and so that was just yeah well, we listened to it and, that, and that's you know and, and like you i had a really varied record collection in junior high school not knowing any difference just like yeah i love that song by the stylistics it's like ooh, it gets grand funk i like that song too exactly you know it's just like it do whatever you know but i think it's coming full circle I really do. Yes, and I think that's what I, I, I take out of this wonderful piece in the New Yorker by Amanda Petrusich. Uh, genre is disappearing. What comes next? It's a dense. It's a long read. We're just kind of skimming through parts that we really, uh, you know, that really resonated with us. I highly encourage you to read the piece. Oh, it's yeah. really fascinating, and I think that the new music business, I think, will be uh, exactly what she describes and exactly what you just described. Radio used to be that we're not going to care. Um, if something's urban hip hop, you know, is it melodic? Is it, you know, it's going to be based, I think, on a target demographic. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, then the next article we're going to talk about is maybe has, I mean, I, I literally had tears in my eyes when I watched this video that is referenced <laughs> in this article. It is so freaking yeah, cool. So, the, so, so the title of the article is Why 2021 Was the Year of the Drummer. Uh, it's by Shirley Halperin. Halperin, I should say, sorry. Uh, and and the, kind of the, the subtitle is The Pandemic Brought Repetition and Rhythm to Our Daily Lives, while Dave Grohl, Questlove, Travis Barker, and Nandy, is it Bushell or Bushel? Nandy. Uh, yeah. Let's, let's go with Bushell, but I, I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, uh, kept the beat. And if you don't yeah. know who Nandy Bushell or Bushel is, uh, you know, yeah, look it, on YouTube. Look on YouTube. So <laughs> she is. Well, actually, I, in this piece too, uh, yeah. they have uh, one of the videos, uh, which is just—it's so beautiful. You know, it's like yeah, fifteen-minute video of of her with uh, Dave Grohl. We'll get into it in a second, but man, it's it's inspiring well we should tell the story so if you didn't know the story and it was all around you know the interwebs during the pandemic this this young girl who was she's actually south african but living in london i think she was nine maybe at the time maybe 10 i think she's 11 now um killer drummer and she was playing along to to songs and she challenged dave grohl to a drum competition <laughs> it showed her playing along to foo fighters tunes she's a fantastic drummer and uh and and all of his friends told him about it and said dude you gotta respond and so they became friends online and and they they, they had a couple of challenges and by the third challenge he just gave up and he said you win and then fast forward to one of their first shows coming out of the pandemic. They were playing at the Forum, they being Foo Fighters. And uh, he, I assume he paid for her to come over and she came on for the encore song. And oh my God, it is just so cute and beautiful. And <laughs> I mean, I had tears in my yeah. eyes. It was so damn yeah. bitching. So 
<laughs> so yeah. it kind of talks about some of, you know, all of these kind of things that are happening that happened uh, in this last year and how kind of inf- how, how so many drummers were at the forefront, basically. But that yeah. is one of the f- more fantastic stories to, that, yeah. that's worth watching. But they talk about, uh, you know, it says 2021 was a year where the wisdom of the drum throne shone through the thank shone through thanks to the likes of Anderson Pock, Bruno Mars, Silk Sonic collaborator and longtime stickman, Travis Barker, of course, whose time pounding away in Blink-182 made him not just a Gen Z hero, but an in-demand producer, and Questlove, a beloved rhythm man for The Roots and of The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, and a noted author, pundit, and now possibly soon to be nominated, documentarian. So all of these people were super busy during 2021. And by the way, that that uh, Anderson Pock, who, who's from this area where I am right now, what a talented singer and a killer drummer. If you've seen any of those Silk Sonic videos, he's ridiculously talented and a yeah. killer voice. And um, yeah, it's just, it's it's all these folks are in the news and, and yeah. been busy, busy, busy. So, yeah. Uh, and they talk a little bit about a, a documentary that you and I have talked about a lot, that Summer of Soul. Mm. Um, Shirley says that, you know, you could say the same for Quest Love, who's, you know, genre agnostic curiosity and on point curatorial taste has informed countless disciples, but it was his direct. Uh, directorial turn with that documentary summer of soul that cemented his place as an iconoclast you know released last june uh, the film about a 1969 harlem music festival loosely known as the black woodstock is poised for awards uh recognition in 2022 and deservedly so um two two summer of soul musical moments that stand out stevie wonder's turn on the drum kit oh my gosh remember that i mean you and i talked about this a little bit Fantastic. Uh, for those that didn't know Stevie Wonder, you know, play drums, it, it, it'll blow your mind, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, mixing James Brown jolts with uh, skates of free jazz fills. And then Sly and the Family Stones um, uh, headlining set featuring a funk engine of a drummer sitting sideways named uh, Greg Errico. That uh, He was white and fierce, only drove home the group's message of everyday people. And she includes videos of all of these things that... You know, she's talking about you touched uh, briefly, you know, on uh, on uh, Travis and uh, Travis Barker. And he um, if you haven't seen the Avril Lavigne bite me video, um, she includes that in the story. Uh, Really a a great track, probably the best track I've heard from Avril Lavigne. And again, uh, he's in it. It's it's charming. It's hilarious. Um, But I hadn't really thought of. You know, this last year is kind of the year of the drummer. But as she kind of points out across all these different genres, um, it really was. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a fun one to watch. And if you if you watch that that Foo Fighters show with her playing drums and you don't have a tear in your eye, something's wrong. <laughs> Go to the doctor, man. You got to you got to watch that video. It is <laughs> so cute and cool. And yeah, now, and you, didn't, the- you didn't see the one. um Yo, Yoyoka. No, um, I haven't seen that one yet. The, it's an eight-year-old Japanese uh, girl, and <laughs> she just destroys Led Zeppelin's "Good Times, Bad Times." Um, there's a link to that <laughs> that video in here too. She looks much younger, but to see that little thing behind the kit and look for those of you uh, who who have played drums, you know that playing John Bonham is no easy feat. No, and or Dave she, Grohl, y- exactly, and. She she just kills it. And then another uh, thing that you and I have been talking a lot about lately is the uh, the Beatles documentary, mm-hmm. the uh, you know eight hour get back series, and uh, you know uh, Shirley kind of concludes the article by saying that you may be wondering where the Beatles Ringo Starr factors, especially considering the popularity of the Disney Plus eight hour get back series, which spawned its own deluge of uh, think pieces and deep dives. Ringo is the steady one, the center of the strife between personalities, uh, always holding the situation together, as Peter Jackson documentary so brilliantly shows. In the moment of real decision, he's the Beatle who, with a devilish grin, Riley made history when he said, quote, I want to go on the roof. Give the drummer some indeed. <laughs> indeed. Great article. Watch all oh the videos. Gosh. Watch all yeah. the videos. Oh if if God, you only read so cool. one article in your morning coffee uh, this this week, m- make it this one. And as you read along and read through this, it, it's just so joyful. And and then watch the videos as you go through each section. Um, 
Yeah, you'll thank me later, and we'll thank Shirley right now. Absolutely. Great article. All right. The, the last one we're going to talk about today <laughs> is from MIT, uh, which is basically their... It's kind of a newsletter, I guess, for their uh, manage for their Sloan School Management Department uh, at MIT, uh, and this is four strategies for digital growth from Spotify's CEO CFO. I'm sorry, CFO, yeah. and that happens to be Paul Vogel, and he's yep. their chief financial officer. And this was uh, stuff he was talking about at the 19th annual MIT Sloan CFO Summit. You know, my invitation to that got lost in the mail. Me Damn too. It. I try to go to that every year. It's probably and yet, in my spam. I'm, I'm shocked that too. we weren't invited to I the it. 19th annual MIT Sloan CFO Summit. Yeah, <laughs> shocking that they they somehow inadvertently left us off. Well, uh, Betsy Verechny or uh, uh-huh. Verecki? Sorry, Betsy. Let's go um, Verecki. Sure. Yeah, Betsy wrote this piece, so we didn't have to attend. She kind of gives us kind of a. <laughs> A high level overview and i'll just kick it off by the you know kind of the sub headline is spotify has 400 million users and its goal is to get to a billion here's how the music streaming service and other digital businesses can expand yeah so paul vogel said we want to have a billion users we want to be the number one global streaming audio player and that means having everything as much as you could possibly think of in audio so he was interviewed by uh, one of the uh, one of the lecturers there at the Global Economics and Management at MIT Sloan, Charles Kane, and he talks about how Spotify experimented with its service offerings before settling on a freemium subscription model. Now, you and I have talked about the freemium subscription model. Uh, the la- their label partners don't really like that, do they? <laughs> no. Well, there's not a lot of revenue there. And I think the nope. promise is that people who use the freemium, meaning the ad supported, mm-hmm. will then like it so much that they will subscribe uh, to the premium service. And further on in this article, um, this uh, um, CFO, Vogel, says that 60% of uh, the folks from the free side uh, end up moving to the paid side. But I. I hear a lot about this. Um, I know that labels, music groups would like to ratchet down uh, that freemium and make Mm -hmm. it so it has less functionality, make it less appealing, make there more ads. Um, But you kind of walk a fine line. One of the reasons why there's a lot less piracy today is because of this freemium model. And you would rather get something uh, rather than nothing. So. Well, he mentioned, he says, while the company has historically had a better revenue growth and better margins on the premium side, no surprise, he said at least 60% of subscribers, as you mentioned, had come on board to Spotify by signing up for the first free subscription. To that end, Spotify continues to invest in its advertising business. What was once a free business that was sort of out there to help supplement the growth of the premium business has now evolved into its own standalone business that is still growing and thriving. So they really use that freemium uh, on the advertising side for revenue. And of course they use it for research and development. And it says, uh, uh, you know, that's, so they, they have a very strategic vision of how they leverage that, uh, freemium uh, to, to, (laughs) I can stumble on that word, (laughs) goofy word, uh, you know, to, to in their business, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a key, strategy for how they run the show and how they want to get to a billion users. So, I mean, I can see that. Yeah. I, I often repeat a a line. I didn't come up with it, but the the line is if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And I think that's true with social media. (laughs) I think it's very true with the freemium model that um, you may not be paying for it. um, But there's so much data um, that Spotify can get and use potentially sell um and that you you have become uh the product there that's um, but exactly you know right. look spotify has a lot of data i often tell people that before street date you know more about your release than anyone you know what the you know publicity plan is you know what the tour is you know if there's any sync uh licenses coming up um, you know everything about that release cadence and about that music. But once it hits the street, now the DSPs know more about it than you do, mm-hmm. a lot more, um, because they know 
who's listening to it and what other things they're listening to, where they're at, what the demographic is. Are they skipping it? Are they adding it to personal libraries? You know, what, what is the behavior of people that listen to it? And they can use that data. They can sell that data. Um, it's very important to uh, targeting an audience with what, uh, what type of music that they're more likely to you know, react to. So I, I find, you know, one of the lines in here is, you know, that they use research and development to improve the user experience, you mm-hmm. know, and I know that algorithm is kind of a, a bad word these days, but it's not to me because I think that, you know, Pandora is really good at uh, serving up music that you're going to like, right? I think that, you know, Spotify's Release Radar, Discover Weekly, Radio, those are algorithmically based but again algorithm equals personalization and personalization sounds good algorithm sounds like a robot and it's i hear you know people all the time say you know i want people to choose my music not an algorithm well you know um it's kind of both. (laughs) whatever Uh, one of their other of course uh, uh important points is open up new lines of business with app with acquisitions uh, Spotify's foray into podcasting with its purchase of Gimlet and Anchor was a bit risky at the time, he said, but is now paying off given that there's so little innovation in podcasting. What? Wait a minute. What's he talking about? Uh, as he said, podcasting was uh, was this business that for 20 years didn't change. He said, but Spotify thinks it can provide tailored recommendations just as it does with the music service to promote engagement and make podcasting an even better experience in addition to, in addition, its advertising component of the podcasting business is helping the margins grow over time what he didn't mention is that yeah and they own that stuff (laughs) you know (laughs) because they're very interested in in having uh having some assets that that they control that's right and the part that you just mentioned that gets glossed over i think too often is that podcasts have been the same for decades and i've i'm an early adopter when it comes to podcasts i was listening you know from day one um, I thought of it as like TiVo for radio, you know, yeah. that I could listen to this program when I wanted to listen to it and I could pause it if I needed to answer the phone or something. And, and I've always been a big fan of podcasts. But the part that people kind of gloss over is that it, it's been the same for a long time. And now Spotify, whose strength is really serving up things that you don't know that you like uh, yet, and hopefully you will. They're going to do that with podcasts and that'll help people like you and me because we have this wonderful podcast, but we want more and more people to, to listen to it. And if Spotify can say, oh, well, here's an audience that would really connect with your podcast, that's, that's better for content creators like us. Yeah, exactly. His last point was actually really interesting, too, is this, uh, which is kind of the headline, don't use old paradigms to divine new music business models. He said that a mistake he's seen people make in the media space is using old paradigms to understand where businesses and markets are heading. As he said, when Netflix was growing, people used to say, well, how big can this company be? Netflix, which mm-hmm. had never existed before, was often compared to HBO, which turned out to be an inaccurate comparison. He said, recent estimates show that HBO Max and HBO combined have more than 40 million subscribers, whereas Netflix has more than 200 million That's subscribers. That's more, right? That's more. Exactly. That is a bigger number. Um <laughs> And Spotify's own subscriber figures continue to decline. He said, we've grown from 100 million users to almost 400 million users over a six-year period of time. We look at all the trends. We try to understand how big these things could go. Noting continued growth in the smartphone market, Vogel said that it was reasonable to assume that streaming will continue to grow as well. The opportunity is limitless, he said. It's limited literally to imagination and how big you think it could be. So I'm sure it's going to be a successful year for Spotify. Without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, that, that number that you just quoted is, is such a good kind of exclamation point on this piece. You know, growing from 100 million to almost 400 million in just six years. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the uh, comparison with Netflix is uh, just. 
That's a roll. Well, and on that, let us wrap up. You and I are recording this on New Year's Day, so uh, yeah. it, it's time to go First out and show enjoy of the day. 2022. Absolutely. So I do want to thank, of course, the folks that bring us to the party, which is TiVo Music Metadata, Bandzoogle, Bands in Town, and Hypebot. 3,000 thank yous, folks, for, for helping yes. us with the show. And Jay Gilbert, what do you say? We wrap up episode number 73. 73. All right, folks, thanks for listening. We know you got a lot of choices in podcast world, and we appreciate you hanging out with Jay and myself. So here's to a happy, healthy, and prosperous 2022. Thank you for listening today to episode 73. We'll see you next week on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.